Hello, everyone, and welcome to Archives for Aliens, the podcast recorded for future life on Earth, planet Earth, consciousness, creativity, the nature of reality, cool people making things, and life outside the box. What makes you tick? This week's guest wandered on in here from right across the hall, actually. William Stage is an American journalist author, and photographer with a focus on the area of the American Midwest, especially St. Louis, this great city where I happen to live. William has worked for the Riverfront Times, a weekly newspaper for over 20 years, interviewing and photographing literally thousands of people, some of whom are pretty well known. He's especially known for documenting his vintage brick wall signs, and he's been a guest commentator on NPR and KWMU-FM. He's also written up over 11 books now, ranging from photography to nonfiction and fiction. So join us in this conversation where I get to know just a little bit about who he is and we get a broad sweep of some of the very interesting work that he's done. Um, I'm hoping that this is just a little intro and we'll get deeper into maybe some of the more interesting stories he's had on another episode. So very warm welcome to William Stage. It's uh, looking through the windshield of a car on a highway. You know, looking at the traffic ahead through the windshield of a car with on a cloudy day. I can't make out the writing on the on the sign. I don't know where it is. It's just a humdrum picture. I do a lot of driving, a lot. I drive probably more than anybody you know. I mean, I drive most of the day, except for maybe an over-the-road truck driver, but I drive most of the day every day. And and many of my jobs have involved driving. So I can relate to the windshield, looking through the windshield of a car. And I, and I love driving, by the way. And to me, it's kind of like a movie. Uh, I'm, go, I'm moving into a movie, you know, like... Like my, my my mind is a camera or a video a video camera, and I'm moving into the the scenery like I'm shooting a movie. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be too fond of this particular highway. I like to get off them on the on the back roads. The buildings on the right look a little bit like a prison. Hmm. I don't know what they are, but um, whenever I go by a prison, I feel, I don't know how I feel. I, you know, I feel kind of bad for the people in there. Not that they don't deserve it, but um, I often, you know, I'm always, whenever I go by a prison, I always look to see if the prisoners are out exercising in the yard. If they are, I'm, I might even stop and look at them for a little while. Hmm. That's about it. I've had a bunch of cars and I've driven millions of miles. All right, I think that's a pretty good answer. That's that's really interesting. 
that you feel like you're driving into a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But so that people can get to know you on a different level, tell us what you believe about the nature of reality. What am I doing about the nature of reality? No, what you believe. About the nature of reality? Yeah. I, whatever I believe, it's not complicated. Believe me. It's, you know, what, what I see and what I experience is what is for me. And I, I can't see the world through anybody else's eyes. And I, well, maybe if I'm reading a book or watching a movie that, you know, th through fiction, I can see the world through another person's eyes. But the nature of reality is, to me, time moving forward, time flowing ahead and moving forward and me in it and just being carried along with time. Mm -hmm. I do think about time a lot. I do. I mean, I've, I've read um, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, and I, I, I've read up on time because it's really pretty amazing. And I think about, <clears throat> I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but I, I often think about all the people that lived before we did and all the all the beings not just people but all the all the creatures everything on earth that lived long 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 before we did and we're just you know we're just a tiny little speck on that on that treadmill of time you know it's fascinating if yeah. you think about it i think it seems like your work as a photographer relates to that concept a little bit well yeah because you know, the average photo is about probably one sixtieth of a second. And I'm talking about, you know, 35 millimeter film cameras now. But I, I always shot at one sixtieth of a second, maybe one one twenty fifth. You're taking that little tiny, tiny snapshot in time, you know, just a tiny minuscule slice of reality for that moment in time. And you capture it and... uh and if you're lucky, you, you you got a good picture. You got something very interesting, you know, and and then you want to show it to other people and see what they think, get their reaction. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, too, that you create books and, like, compilations with your photos and that it's not just one photo, it's so many kind of stating similar things or organized in a certain way. What was the first thing you said? It's interesting that I do what? That you compile your your photos mm -hmm. in such a way, like creating a book with them. I, I just did that. Um, oh, you saw it on the hallway, didn't you? Yep. Well, that's only about the, that's I guess the fifth time I've done that. Or no, more than that, maybe about the eighth or ninth time I've done that. Because I've had shows, too, which are not books, but exhibits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where I had to pick. I had to pick photos. Um, well, yeah. Uh, if you have enough photos and then you, you begin to see a theme and you want to uh, pull out the pictures that might conform to that theme, 
yeah and see what you have and see how they fit together so when you're taking these pictures do you know what the theme is or does the theme come together no, afterwards I, I i often get in the car i've been doing this i've been here 43 years this month so when i first got here i went north i went west i went south and it was okay but when i went east over to Illinois, I really liked it over there. Hmm. So I've been hanging out in Metro East uh, and South this whole time. So I get in the car. I did this a week ago Friday. I, I get in the car. And I bring my camera. I go to small towns, and, and I, I, dri I drive in the country. I stop off at places like grain elevators and bars and cemeteries, and uh, I get out and walk around and look around. I photograph, you know. But a lot of times I don't do it just to do it. I do it because I'm doing other things. I'm doing other things over there, you know. Like I'm serving papers or I'm visiting a friend or something, you know. I, mm -hmm. I like to have a reason to go over there other than just to photograph but yeah, I mean, I, I know what I'm doing. I, I'm I'm looking for barns and silos and just different parts of uh, rural life, farming life. But that's not all I'm doing. But but that's one thing. Yeah. Are you doing any writing at the moment? Um, no, not really. I wrote that novel. Uh, my novel came out a year ago, and I'm taking a break. I could be writing, but I, I choose not to right now. Mm -hmm. I've been working on that photo book. Yeah. There's a, a little bit of writing involved in that. There's a couple poems, and there's some some um, explanation of the of the pictures. But I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'll work on a novel in the next year. Yeah, well, it seems like you understand your creative flow. If you you've written twelve, twelve books, thirteen, <laughs> thirteen. Okay, yeah. So I mean, whatever works for you. Do you have? And and I might add, thirty three years journalism. That's a lot. Yeah, you that think is about a lot. It, a lot of writing for the newspaper and magazine. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite job? Favorite job? Oh. Yeah. Or favorite place that you wrote for? Right now, I would say it was being an oyster man in Olympia, Washington for two summers. I lived out there. Huh. I lived on a peninsula in 1974 and 75. And... I um, there were twelve oyster companies on that little peninsula, and I worked for Ellison Oyster Company. I was in college at Evergreen. Oh, I have friends that went to Evergreen. Yeah, and um, so it was a lot of college kids. You know, we had maybe twenty, twenty college kids working in the oyster company. Mm -hmm. It was so interesting because you're in the mud flats, the tide goes out, and and you. You either you're planting the oysters or you're harvesting oysters. The tide comes in, and by that time, you know it's been f four or five hours. By that time, 
your back is hurting and you're ready to quit. And then we used to go, come on, Tide, come on, Tide. But it was just fascinating because all these creatures were on the bottom, were in the slithering around in the mud. There would be like, there'd be like ten foot long red worms. Oh, you know that sounds horrible. And, to and me. there were flounders and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, if you're into marine biology, it was it was an ideal job. And and I, yeah. I am. I'm into all kinds of natural history. But I, I really liked that job, you know. Was, and then uh, in the morning we'd get there. And there'd be a cook, and she would cook us hangtown fries, which are, it's like an oyster omelet. So, and they had, oh, God, just so, mountains of oyster shells. And people out there, they take the oyster shells, and they crush them, and they put them in their driveway. Instead like of gravel? gravel? Like gravel, you know? Oh, Interesting. I mean, these inlets are perfect for oyster oyster culture because they're they're long and narrow and shallow. So the tide really goes out and it leaves the whole thing bare. And then it, about six hours later, it comes back in. Interesting. Do you think that this experience influenced your your writing or your photography? Probably not. You just enjoyed it. It was just something I I thought it was. You know, I thought of that job when you said yeah. favorite job. I, you know, it lasted probably like about a month for two summers. It was it was so unique. Yeah. And oh, it smelled it smelled really earthy. If it, you you can imagine, you know, you're working. It's the ocean. Yeah. But you're 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 in hip boots. And you're standing there, and you're you're you know you're in muck up to your up to your ankles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it it, yeah. it sounds crazy to me. It's interesting you brought this up though, because my one good friend that went to Evergreen, she moved to Maine to, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, har- fish harvest mussels. Yeah. Yeah. I love mussels. So I guess it must be a common thing. Like people go to the area and get intrigued. <laughs> Yeah. Washington and Maine are probably similar. Mm-hmm. With the the aquaculture. Yeah. And have you gotten to travel to interesting places to write about a bunch of things? Or are you mostly? I was in eighteen countries by the time I was twenty five. Wow. But then, okay. but then I have I don't know if I've been to a new country since then. I don't know. I mean but I uh yeah, I mean I've I lived in Europe for um, nearly two and a half years, and I went to a lot of countries. I had a, I had time on my hands. Mm-hmm. I was in the army, but I had a lot of time, a lot of free time. Mm. And uh, were you so, writing too at that time? I was writing poetry, not 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 prose. I was writing, but I was I was in college in the evening. I went to uh, University of Maryland night school. I took. English comp and I took German mm-hmm. and so um, I was busy learning languages you know learning to write and learning to to speak German and uh, but you asked me if I've been to Israel and then I, I lived in I spent the summer of 73 in 
West Africa and Nigeria. I was only, uh, I turned 22 there and I had a pretty good time. I was, I was the co-leader of a small group, kind of like a private Peace Corps. Huh. It was called Volunteers for International Development. And I got college credit for it. So actually the, the VA then paid, the GI Bill paid for me to do that. Interesting. Um, yeah, you've been on quite a trajectory. Yeah. And then lately, in the last 18 years or so, I've been going up to Nova Scotia uh, in the summer to Cape Breton Island uh, for a week, only for a week. I can only afford to leave for a week. I'm self-employed. I would, it would ruin my business to be gone mm. too long. People count on me. <clears throat> but anyway, um, I go up there now. I'm originally from Michigan. I go I go up there, and uh, and I, I maybe maybe this year I'll go to Scotland again. I haven't been there for quite a while. I'd like to go back. I found out the name of the town where my ancestors came from. It's in the Highlands on the ocean. I'd like to go there and look at it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And. So I also know that you've interviewed quite a lot of people. Really, thousands of people. But I've interviewed some famous people too. Did you did a project where you interviewed 8,000 people and photographed them? It wasn't a project, it was was my job at the newspaper. Well, who who so what was your most interesting experience during your job at the newspaper interviewing well, all these people? It's so long. I mean, like, it, most interesting I wouldn't have one. I could tell you. Yeah, just tell us a couple stories of like some characters you met on the street. I'm sure it was bound to happen. The man on the street. Street talk, where I, I walk up to people I accost, total strangers, and I ask them foolish or impertinent questions, philosophical questions. Um, I mean, it was a way of life, for one thing. I just carry my camera with me everywhere I went. I, I I would never do it in one day. Right. I would take three or four days to do it, to come up with six interviews, just brief, very brief interviews. You know, mm -hmm. like a, the interview and the photo, the the whole encounter might only take about five or ten minutes. Uh, and. Uh, I often I I began to realize as I did it that it, it was better to do it in bars and restaurants, and coffee shops, where I could set my camera down, where I could have you know write on my reporter notebook. You know, if you do it on the street, uh, you know you really need a kind of a table to do it. You should have a table. I mean, because you, well anyway. Um, uh, I interview some. Sometimes I'd hear about some person coming through St. Louis, and they were going to maybe give a talk or make an appearance, and I would seek them out. And and uh, I think a lot of people like to look at the column to see who, what, per, what interesting person might be in the column that week. Hmm. 
I, I interviewed this guy who was named Pope Shenouda III, <laughs> and he was the uh, leader of the Ethiopian Coptic, Coptic Church. And I waited for him to be done with what he was doing. He was in this, this church, and I asked him a question, you know. Like, sometimes I would formulate the question for a specific person, and then the other people would answer it too. But the question was for that person, basically. It was geared toward that person's, what I perceived would be their, their interests. And I asked Pope Shenouda III uh, what, what advice he had for, for his followers or his, uh, what, 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 what practical advice did he have for people? And he said, it's better, it's better to light a candle than sit alone in the darkness, which is a platitude, basically. <laughs> he gave me a platitude. <laughs> and I kind of laughed about that, you know. Anybody could tell you that. Yeah, it's pretty vague. Well, yeah, very basic, you know. Uh, buy low, sell high, that kind of thing. Um, Kurt Vonnegut, I'm a big, big fan of Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, he was having, he was here at Webster University in 1997, and he was promoting, he was here to talk about a play that he had helped, uh, a, a, an Eastern European playwright had, it was an anti-war play, and an Eastern European playwright had written it the playwright, playwright was dead, but Vonnegut and his friend Harry James Cargus were, were promoting the play. So I arranged for an interview with him, and I had, I had thought all day, what, what questions am I going to ask him, you know? And when, when I, it was my time with him, it was me and him alone. Are you familiar with Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah. It was me and him alone in a room, and he was... Um, it was in the afternoon. He was drinking some some sort of whiskey, and he was at a desk and smoking his palmels, and his eyes were really baggy, and he didn't seem like he was in a very good mood. Um, and I asked him some questions that he thought were really impertinent. I, I one of the questions was, "Where were we before we were born?" And I thought he I thought he might warm up. To these questions, they, um, mm -hmm. they weren't all as philosophical as that, but he looked at me and, and he kind of glowered at me and he said, you came here looking to find a comedian, didn't you? And I said, well, Kurt, you know, your books have made a lot of us laugh, you know, some of the situations in your books are very comical. And... Uh, he, he indicated to me he didn't really want to talk to me at all. <laughs> I, he let me take his picture with Harry James Cargus, and it's a great photo. I love it. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But he didn't uh, ever appear in my column. And then when I wrote uh, my memoir called Fool for Life, I put that anecdote in there, and, and I dedicated it, the book to Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt had died right around that time. He died about six, seven years ago, I think. So basically, he didn't really answer any of your questions. He wasn't in. No, it. he didn't. 
He didn't. He was irritated at me. Hmm. He wanted to talk about the play. He thought I was there to talk about the play, and that's that was the problem. I wasn't there to oh. talk about the play. I just, you know, he, he, I, I, I was just a foolish young man who came in to ask him some stupid questions, you know. And he was my literary idol, and he might still be. I just, I just have reread a couple of his books in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. I really get a kick out of him. Slaughterhouse Five is genius. It's, it's genius. Yeah, I think he's funny. I think he's quite funny. His philosophy is funny. So here's my idol, you know, basically giving me the bum's rush. You know, there's the door. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, were you still quite excited that you got to speak with him? Or was it kind of a rough interaction? I was happy to meet him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I told myself, I'm not going to let this not li- make me not like him. I'm not going to do that. He just wasn't in a good mood. Uh, who else did you encounter? Lots of people. Jimmy Carter, Muhammad Ali, um, Queen Ida. So many people, really. So, uh, Eric, Adam Sandler. Just a whole. Did lot he of give you a funny answer at least? Yeah. And this is all. These people are all coming into St. Louis, right? But Jimmy Carter, I met in Atlanta because I, I traveled too, and I I would do the same thing in other cities. I wouldn't be there that long, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm never in one place. When I travel, I'm I'm never gone too long. But he, his wife Rosalind, was having a book signing at B. Dalton, and he was there. Nice guy too. Really nice guy, very accommodating. Yeah, I mean. I carried a, K, a Pentax K1000 everywhere I went. That's... Yeah. Oh, uh, there's a Polish-American writer by the name of... Uh, what's his name? Um, he wrote... He wrote Being There. I don't want to see. Oh. He, was, he was at the Jewish Book Fair... And I went there to interview him. I have, I had three identical Pentax K1000s, but well, they they might be a little bit different because I mean, this one has a scratch on it in a particular place, and this one has a different strap, you know. But mm-hmm. they're very they're the same model and make and everything. Jersey Kaczynski, you ever hear of him? I have not heard of him. Uh, well, he was a fairly well known writer. He committed suicide in New York eventually but i went there to photograph him i to interview him and photograph him and i interviewed him and i photographed him and then i got home and i had picked up the wrong camera and the camera had no film in it <laughs> so i'm photographing him oh, a, with a camera with no film so poor jersey he never he never got in the <laughs> column yeah that's rough j-e-r-z-y it's, I don't. I don't know if you pronounce it Jersey or Yerzy. I'm. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Kozinski. Yeah, 
I don't, I'm not sure either, but it's, it's rough, like, I feel like you used to have to carry so much more equipment, like, now, I mean, decent enough films can get filmed on a It wasn't phone. much equipment at all. It wasn't? It's just a camera and some film and a flash. That's it. These cameras are heavy. Well, yeah. 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 I'm just so used to being able to pull something out of my pocket. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It's easier nowadays. And, and phones actually take pretty good pic- pictures. They do. They, mm-hmm. they really do. Yeah, recently. I think they do. It's... So that's quite so, a journey. Sometimes I, I, I would encounter people doing my column and then I'd end up hanging out with them, you know, and we'd be hanging out for, and maybe partying, you know, for hours. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the craziest thing that happened had to be, I was in Soulard one, one morning. I remember it was a stormy day and I, I went into a coffee place. Like a, it might've been a bar. It could have been a coffee shop. I don't know. It was in the morning. And there were there was a guy and two women in there, and I walked over and I, I would you know introduce myself and I usually carried a, the the Riverfront Times to show people what I was doing, you know open it up. I want you to be in in this column, you know. I want to ask you a question, and I want to take your picture. Okay, mm-hmm. it's it's very very spontaneous. We're just doing it. You don't have time to go in the bathroom and fix yourself up or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that their friend had died and they were there. I think maybe they had the funeral that day, but, but, the, but the guy died just either very, not very long ago. And they were, uh, rem, you know, reminiscing about their friend. And, um, and I ended up hanging out with them all day and, and, Maybe I was attracted to one of the women or something, but you know, I, um, I ended up hanging out with him, and we ended up going to the cemetery where the guy was buried, and uh, and the guy had a gun, and this was like four or five hours after I met them, so I'd gotten to know him pretty well by that time. Mm-hmm. The guy had a gun. He pulls out this, and he's talking to his buddy. Uh, who's buried in the ground there and and he's he's like mad at his buddy for dying or something and he he pulls out this gun and he starts shooting trees with it <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty scary <laughs> i got a little bit worried i got a little bit worried that he might you know like just shoot me because he didn't know me that well and maybe he wanted to I, I got yeah i, I mean that's I, a, I lot. It's a lot i immediately des- decided that his mental state was very reckless and, and dangerous, and I wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. Before the cops came, you know? Well, that style of journalism is it's really fun to me. It's, yeah. I feel like that's how you really get to know somebody, and that's how you really get like a, a realistic picture of somebody or something or a moment, because there's no time to prepare or think about right. it. Yeah, it's all off the cuff. yeah at one point i had an idea for doing some kind of a podcast that was like a version of uber but like you pick somebody up and then they're on your podcast i feel like someone's probably done that but you mean on the street 
Well, if it was Uber, they would be getting a ride from you. But yeah, just a random person who needs an Uber ride <laughs> would come on You'd the podcast. Be the driver? Yeah. And then you interview them? Yeah. You know that um most newspapers would have made me carry a model release and and, and uh had get the people I interviewed to sign that model release. Hmm. But it never came up. It huh. never came up. And if it had come up, it would have really put a crimp a crimp in my in my operation because people wouldn't want to do that. People because when you get somebody, that that makes it much more formal. You know? I know. I was on a podcast one time where I had to sign something. It was, I was just like, eh. Yeah, and and we and like, like like you say, I interviewed about it over in uh, twenty two and a half years, week in week out. I, I interviewed about eight thousand six hundred people for that column, and but not everybody got in. I I would interview about. 10 or 11 people. No, I'd, I'd interview about eight or nine people for six slots. Mm-hmm. There were, there was, and sometimes only five. But th- those people that didn't get in, I would try and contact them and get them with another question for, for the following week. Oh, okay. So do you, and do you have all of those 8,000? <laughs> Yeah, interviews I somewhere i do that's yeah it's they're amazing in file cabinets they're all um they're all three by five black and white photos prints prints and then i have the negatives here in this building hmm. in a file cabinet across the hall i have the negatives not just those negatives but all my negatives wow okay my negatives go back to 1973 we got to protect this building Huh? We got to protect the building. <laughs> My negatives go way back, um, nearly fifty, nearly fifty years, I guess. Um, but yeah, for, specifically from there are a lot of them from seventy-eight to two thousand five, something like that. Because mm-hmm. I began to use a, a, a digital camera, I suppose, around. Maybe not quite ten years ago, when when print film became obsolete, and it, it, it's very expensive now to get it to get it developed. Mm-hmm. Although I, I shoot with um, this medium format camera called a Mamiya, which is a, a a big square negative, like two and a quarter by two and a quarter inches, mm. and you you look down into it, you know. Um, I'm trying to master that. I, I've had that thing for about 20 years, and I'm trying. I'm still trying to master that. And um, I get that print. I get that. That's a film camera. I get that developed at Schiller's for fun. It's kind of a hobby, you know. It is a hobby. But I have a digital camera, and I have a, a cell phone. I photograph with, but you know, it's kind of weird because you, you can't learn much about photography just w- with a digital camera or a cell phone. You really can't because you, 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 you have no idea about controlling the light because the, the device does it for you. Yeah. You know, you don't have F stops. You don't have shutter speeds. You know, yeah. you, you don't. And it, 
I mean, all you do is point and shoot. You don't, you don't have to make, you don't have to think about what kind of settings you need. Mm-hmm. No, I know because I've been, I've been trying to learn over time. I'm so used to the iPhone that auto does whatever. I don't know what it does, but it looks better when I take it on the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's. And you, you know, and. You make mistakes, and then you learn from those mistakes. Are you a part of any writing or photo groups? No, I'm not. Have you always worked pretty much solo? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Well, I've had, you know, as a journalist, I've had editors that help me a lot. I've had editors, Mm -hmm. and they, they teach you the mechanic. You know, what you don't know about the mechanics of writing, they'll, they'll fill you in. Yeah. Pe- people ask me, you know, um, oh, did you go to school for, for writing? I guess they mean journalism. And I, I say, well, yeah, I did. I have a college degree. And even in, gr- even in grade school and high school, I learned to write a pretty good sentence and if you can write a sentence, you can write a paragraph. And if you can write a paragraph, you can write a chapter of a book, you know. Mm-hmm. And then college just made that much more, ade- I got better at it. So, you know, just, just go into school. That's, that's really all you need. I got hired on as a journalist. I didn't go to journalism school, but I got hired on and I was good. And they kept me for a long time. And I made my living at it for over 20 years. You know, and I never went to journalism school, but I did go to school to learn how to, how, to learn English composition, like we all did. Yeah. Do you get a lot of questions about, like, advice on how how to be a journalist or how to, Not I guess, much. get your projects published? Um, yeah, but it's far and few between. Far and few between. Now, um, I do have a friend that we, we, once in a while, we go out photographing together. And then my daughter is uh, in the arts, and then she likes, I've gone out with her photographing. Her name's Margaret. And we've, we've gone out over to the east side, done pictures. And then uh, the book that's coming out called Welcome to Old Ripley, the the one you saw me lay, laying out in the hallway, she helped me with that book. She um, put all the pictures, uh, help help get them scanned, and then put them into folders where I could get them printed out, mm-hmm. like on paper, just regular paper, so I could lay them out and edit them. I can't do that stuff. I'm I'm not very uh, tech savvy I'm really bad could start somewhere I I often just don't know what button to hit what key to hit you know or what combination of keys to to do some kind of function Mm -hmm. that's how I feel when I pick up a camera (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I know I know what you mean well my cameras by the way were not at all automatic they were all manual all the Pentax K1000 it's all manual Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any advice for maybe somebody who's like in college right now or someone who's listening to this who wants to get into journalism? Yeah. Um, you, you know, um, I started in, in newspapers in the, in the late 70s. We're talking a long time ago. And back then, they were going great guns. You know, there was another paper like the RFT here. There were two, two weekly tabloids. And there were, there were two daily newspapers. And then there was a third daily newspaper called, called the, the St. Louis Sun. That didn't last very long, about a half a year. But anyway, there was a lot of advertising to keep those papers going and afloat. And, but now the advertising has fallen off. And so the, the, you can't just approach an, uh, an editor and say, I'd like to write for the newspaper and I'd like to show you what I have. But, okay, to answer your question, I mean, well, let me go back to that for a second. It's not, it might work. You, you could have three, four, five different stories that you've written. And hopefully they're like creative journalism, you know, like magazine style journalism. Not, not like, you know, nuts and bolts reporting about a basketball team you know beating you know beating another team something you know like a feature a feature something you can pour your heart into you know and then you know you could try approaching editors uh with these stories and, and you know be prepared to hand them out and and tell them you're interested to, to get on with that, that paper or a magazine. It could be online. There aren't very many. How many actual newspapers are there, the Post? Here you got the Webster Kirkwood Times. There aren't that many. You got St. Louis Magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there aren't that many that come out in print. You thought what? I don't think there are that many that come out in print. There's... Some that have switched to online only. There aren't that many that come out in print, but um, to me, that's the way to go because who's going to sit in front of their computer and just... Like, there's such, such a huge ocean of articles to read. Who's, who's going to read uh, all these papers? But if you're, if you're sitting in a restaurant and, and you see Feast Magazine laying there, you're going to pick it up maybe. You're probably going to pick it up and look at it. Mm -hmm. I think you have more of a chance of being read if you're actually in a print publication. Yeah, I'd think so. Well, I mean, still, there's the old tried, tried and true method of... Um, you, it, it, you don't just approach an editor and say, I, I want to write for your publication. You have to show them what you've already written, what hopefully what you've already had published somewhere else. You know, You have to give them an idea of what you can do. Mm -hmm. so just you know pull together your best stories not too long either just you know maybe one or two thousand words and and then bring it along and then drop off maybe you don't even get to talk to the editor maybe you get to talk to the the copy editor or the editor's third assistant or something like that 
But that's what I did at the RFT. And, and they let me write one story, and they were going to decide you know, if they would keep me. And I wrote the story. And it was, it was, I was a, kind of a humor writer. I mean, not kind of. I was. I wrote prose humor a lot. And they, and they liked that story. It was funny. I forgot what it was, though. I forgot what it was. I think it might have been a look at alleys. I think I was, you know, writing about alleys in St. Louis. Because hmm. they were pretty interesting. We didn't have alleys where I grew up. Oh. I really like alleys. Interesting. Yeah, we do have a lot of alleys here, I think. We really do. I try not to drive through them too, too much anymore because I'm always getting something in my tires. I get a nail in my tires. Yeah. And, and I got four-wheel drive. And if you, if you ruin one tire, you got to buy f- all four of them. Don't ask me why, but you, you got to. Hmm. It'll ruin your something. Okay. I don't know. I probably just listen to the car people. <laughs> So that's, I mean, I think that's some good advice for how to get started. So it sounds like basically you have to have already written something or more than one thing, preferably. It could, it could be for, you know, f- maybe you had a, we're in a writing class in college. It could be for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the professor's marks all over it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like an editor. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think it is a very unique field. Uh, do you think it's going to be changing because of technology? It already is changing. They're just... Look, look at the Riverfront Times. It's hardly... It comes out still, but it's just a, a, a sliver of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. It used to be well over 100 pages every week. Now it's just maybe, I don't know what, like 20 pages. I don't know. It's small. Not very voluminous. It already is changing. Yeah. So many things are changing. How do you feel about it? I feel frankly, you know, I'm glad in a way that I'm gonna I'm gonna be passed on in the next twenty years, maybe. Because I, I don't wanna live to to see all the way it's going is kind of it's kind of discouraging, I think. Although I have a good time, I have a fairly good time. But but the way society is going, it's it's gotten so artificial to me, really mm. artificial. Yeah. And, and and it's discouraging, and you know, I mean, I, I'm glad I'm not going to live to see this thing through to to its ultimate. Its ultimate. I don't know what it, what. I don't know what. I hate to sound old, you know. I hate to sound old, but just some of the things that are going on. So much people texting all the time, not really talking to each other, but texting. (laughs) My daughters come down uh, in the morning for breakfast. I say, hello, good morning. And I get, uh and they and they and they're on their phones. They're on their phones, early in the morning, you know, before breakfast. They don't, they can't even, 
even be bothered to say good morning, you know, hmm. because they're texting to their friends or something. I don't know. Again, very discouraging. The lack of like human connection. Yeah, yeah, that. And just so how we've let technology get into our lives and kind of run our lives. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. I don't know what we're going to do about it, but I'd, I'd like to do something about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can't do anything about it. We'd have to knock on all the satellites and, um, you know, d disrupt the connections. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, your aliens will do that for us. They might. They might. Yeah. They might come down and save the day for the podcast. You never know. Have you ever seen a UFO? No, I have not. Have you? Yeah, I have. Do you want to tell and your I've story seen about one that? And, and I reported on one, one of the most, um, one of the most celebrated sightings uh, in America on the east side 20 years ago. But uh, my UFO experience, I was in college up in, up in the cornfields in Michigan, southwestern Michigan, and I was out with my astronomy class. It was probably March or April of, um, of 75, and it was dusk. We were looking at some, some planets. We had telescopes, but I, with my naked eye, I looked up, and like I said, it was dusk. It wasn't dark yet. It was getting dark. But I looked up, and there were five football-shaped objects that went from one cloud bank, and they made an arc, and they went from one cloud bank into another. Hmm. And the whole thing only took about five or six seconds. But another guy saw it with me. And uh, if that wasn't a UFO, I don't know what it was. But, but when I say UFO, I'm, I'm strictly saying unidentified flying object. I don't know what it was. I, you know, yeah. I'm not assuming it was extraterrestrial, but it was definitely a UFO. I mean, because nothing like that. You, you, you don't see five, five gray football-shaped objects going from one cloud bank into another. Like, what, what could that be? I have no idea, especially at that time. I, I think maybe now it's a little harder to tell because some of the newer spacecrafts I've seen, like when you watch the alien shows and stuff like that, it's kind of hard to tell because the new technology is a little different, I think, even in the last 10 years, uh, but I have no idea. In the spring of 2000, I covered the Metro East UFO sighting, and um, I, I would say that was, even, even now, after all these years, that was the most interesting story I, I'd mm. ever done. And, and the RFT gave me a lot of time to work on it. They gave me about two months Wow. To work on it. There were there were seven people in about five different towns. Or maybe no, no seven people in, in six or seven different towns that saw this UFO from about four AM to about four forty five AM. In a forty five minute period, it went from Highland to Lebanon 
to Milstadt, to um, to Dupo, and a few places in between. And uh, four of the seven people who saw it were policemen. Hmm, that's strange. Well, I yeah. guess maybe they're just like out at night. Well, no, they. Well, um, the first the first cop radioed. Uh, he he saw it moving toward. Uh, let, let's just say. The police in Lebanon saw it moving toward Milstadt, so they radioed Milstadt. Oh. And then Milstadt radioed Dupo, I think. But but the one in Milstadt was the most interesting one where this policeman named Craig Stevens, he he went out to Liederkranz Park because he was told that, that there, there might be something coming his way. And he, and he was on record saying this, and I interviewed him too, but... This thing had the uh, properties of both an airplane and a dirigible because it it was noiseless and it could hover and it could take off at a a fast rate of speed. And it was arrowhead shaped and it was lit up. It had lights because the first guy who saw it in Highland, he said it looked like a big house up above him with lights on it. So it was that big. Yeah, it was pretty big, um, but I don't know how big, but it was big. Let, let's just say, oh, yeah, it was b- big as a house, if not bigger. But, but anyway, this officer, Craig Stevens, he goes out to Liederkranz Park, which is right there in Milstadt, and he's out of his car, and he's looking around. He doesn't see anything, and he looks up, and it was right above him. It was right above him. Not that, you know, like it, it, it was hovering 500 to 800 feet. And it was again no sound, and then it took off. That's very scary. And he had a Polaroid camera, and he took a picture of it, but it it, it didn't come out. I saw the picture, but Weird. you know, yeah, I, it, a lot. It's been talked about a lot, and you know, the fact that it was really close to Scott Air Force Base mm-hmm. could mean it was one of ours that uh, under under uh, under wraps, you know, experimental. Yeah. Yeah, that's the vibe that I get a lot from a lot of these stories. But I mean, I don't. That's almost scarier than aliens. <laughs> but, but but whatever it was, there's no doubt that those people saw something remarkable. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, they all like four four out of seven were, were policemen. And mm-hmm. you know, and and Stevens didn't even want to talk about it because he. He he thought that you know people would think he's nuts, and he he didn't want the attention, but he got it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that must be a weird experience for people who have those sightings, because on the one hand, it's so important that people are honest and share their experience, because we don't know what's going on, but it is a lot of pressure. I would like it if in my lifetime, you know, we would make contact with aliens um, for better or for worse. I don't know. I mean, it, it could be really bad, but mm-hmm. hopefully it wouldn't be. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Not like the aliens in Independence Day. I just watched that again. <laughs> yeah, you, hopefully not. You've not seen that. that, right? Yeah. Have you uncovered any mysteries or secrets or like 
anything like that in your time as a journalist? Well, I, I was never an investigative reporter. I, I was, again, you know, I was more entertainment mm-hmm. feature. Yeah. Features and, you know, light, lighthearted columns. Did anything ever come up accidentally? Mysteries? Yeah. No, no, not really. But I, I had some, I did cover some very sad, tragic situations, which, you know, where people were killed or murdered hmm. and um, talked to the, you know, the family members. Maybe they didn't know where the, where the people were. I did a, I did a great, uh, a, a true crime book called Litchfield. Litchfield, a strange and twisted saga of murder in the Midwest, which was a, a, a mystery. That I, I wrote it like a novel. Came out in 1998, and um, that was a, that was a mystery because they, they couldn't identify the body for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And once they identified the body, then the mystery began to unravel. So, so that was a real mystery. That was probably the only one I can think of. Was that based on some real experiences? Or no, it's, cases? it's a true crime. It's based on true crime and the, and the perpetrator, the, um, the man who went to, to prison for it, mm-hmm. was not a friend, but, but an acquaintance of mine. And I, I knew him fairly oh, well. Oh, wow. Okay. I knew him fairly well. I, and he's, That's this, he's still in prison, I think. Man. That's all right. Well, I mean, that's a good place to get your story from. As true crime books go, I think it's pretty good. I I really patterned it, patterned it after In Cold Blood. Hmm. You know, I really tried to bring out the psychological aspect of it. I didn't want to make it gory and gruesome. Yeah. Just just the beginning. Only the, where they find the body. It's a headless, nude body of a woman burning in a campfire. People come upon it. It was prom night. It was prom night in in Hillsborough, Illinois. And people came upon the body burning. That's really the only gruesome part Mm -hmm. in the movie. I mean, the movie, in the book. But it's a great psychological study, I think. Yeah. Do you think you've learned a lot about human nature? Yeah, I do. I think I've learned a lot about it. I'm learning more every day. Mm-hmm. What's something that's really interesting to you about the way that, that people work? About the way that people work? Yeah. Or don't work, <laughs> I guess, in this case. Right offhand, I'm going to say that people... Uh, are basically incapable of telling the truth when confronted with an accusation. They almost always deny it. Even police, mm-hmm. police and average ordinary people and my kids, you know, they can't, people can't ever fess up to what they did. A huh. lot of them. They can't just go, yeah, I did it. So what? They, That's they, interesting. They all have, you know, when confronted with, something that they think they're going to get in trouble for they always lie and what what did you ask me if if that was interesting to me or what did you ask i'm not quite sure exactly what the question was something about 
what you've learned about human nature. Well, that's one of them. People pathologically lie. They, do you think do that's on, only... On, especially they'll do it on the stand if they think they're going to go to jail. No. People in high positions, mayors and governors, like Andrew Cuomo right now, they lie, you know? I think it's it's a form of cowardice, that's all. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we'd probably be all better off if people just owned up to whatever. We could probably move move past it a bit. Uh, what how about a positive spin on this what's a what's a positive thing you've learned about human beings um well i you know <clears throat> a lot of people this is not positive. A, a, a lot of people whine and complain, and they um, and they would be much better off if they would just start the day off in a good mood. However, they have to do that, you know. You start the day off in a good mood. You have to have you have to have a a, a really positive attitude. You have to, you know, like think about every day. Every day is a new adventure. You know, and it's not going to be a grueling, awful thing. It's going to be, even if you have a shitty job, you can make it fun, you know? So when I come upon somebody who's basically good-natured and, and, and uh, has a positive attitude, I really, I really cherish that person. Mm-hmm. I, I might even want to be around them. I might even do something nice for them. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I agree. Just got to get more positive people spreading the positive vibe. Yeah. Too many grumpy people. What do you do to start your morning? Oh, I don't do anything special necessarily. I, I, once I, I listen to the radio early in the, I, I get up really early um, and I listen to the radio and I work at my computer. I, I type up my, it, it's humdrum what I do in the morning. But once I leave the house and I'm in the car driving around, then I, then I, I treat myself to, you know, maybe, maybe I go to Straub's and get, get some kind of nice sandwich or, or whatever, a quart of milk. I might go for a walk. I might go like today. I swam a half mile. I, I, I do some kind of exercise and then I, um, I drive around and I serve subpoenas and summonses. I give people papers that they don't really want. And I find that kind of amusing sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, is that your job right now? It's been my job for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, 1998 is when I started doing it. I'm doing it every day. But I'm, I'm also writing, you know. Yeah, cause, yeah. Because I can, it's the kind of job where I, you know, I make my own hours, basically. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, that's another thing. I say people are grump, grumpy and they whine. Well, when I'm serving them papers that they don't want, they're being sued, or they're being subpoenaed to come to court, and they don't want to, they don't want to have to tell the truth in a bunch in front of a bunch of people. 
it doesn't make their day. It, it does the opposite. It, yeah. And and I find that kind of fun too. I I, you I find kind of that like. Fun? <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, I, I I'm not going to gloat or or laugh in, in front of them, but but if they bitch about it, <clears throat> when I get back in the car, I start thinking about it, and I think, oh man, I just ruined that person's day, you know. And I and I I might find it funny or amusing. I don't know. I could. <laughs> when people throw shit at me, I like that. I do. I like it when people. I like it in a perverse kind of way when people are mad at me. You're just the deliverer. Yeah, I mean... Again, I, I like it in a kind of a perverse sort of way. I like being the object of scorn and, mm. and uh, insults that I get. Because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm bigger than that. I'm, I'm better than that. I, it doesn't bother me. But I, oh, okay. I, but I enjoy people directing their ire at me. Sometimes. So it's just and, and funny that, to you. And, and that's a weird thing. You've probably never met anybody like that, but that's kind of a weird thing. And I, I'm aware of it, but um, it, it's enjoyable for me. I mean, I'm sure that people are probably like that. They might just not be aware. Yeah. Or like ready to admit it or talk about it. But I mean, I could see how it's kind of funny. Do you ever feel bad for people depending on the situation? Yeah, probably I do. Like I serve a lot of orders of protection, where where people claim other people are uh, bothering them or stalking them or they want to kill them, but you know, I don't, I don't ever totally believe it because I mean, I, I'm skeptical because people do that. They they want to get other people in trouble. Mm. Sometimes you know, it, I I could I could, I'm not even going to make the assumption it's true. I'm not. I'm going to try and be neutral. But anyway, um, what, what was the question again? If you ever feel bad for people. Yeah, so... I mean, if, if, if I give them a piece of paper and then they have to go out and hire a lawyer to defend themselves and they have to go into debt and you know pay that lawyer eight, $8,000 or $12,000 to get them out of trouble... You know, I don't feel bad about that because it's just, it's just the way the cookie crumbles, you know. I don't feel bad about that. I, I could feel bad about that. Mm -hmm. But it happens all the time. Um, I, I guess I don't have it in me to feel sympathy for a lot of people. Mm. I, you know. I mean, like, like if I saw somebody who was severely handicapped, you know, and maybe going down the street. I I don't know if I feel bad for them or not. I'm not sure. But 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 I know that that's that's their life. And I'm glad I don't have that life. I know that. I guess instead of feeling bad for them, I just feel grateful that I'm not them. Hmm. Um or it could just be, you know, maybe they're not physically handicapped. Maybe they're just mentally fucked up. And, mm -hmm. and I could feel bad for them for being that way. But again, I'm just grateful that I'm not that way. Yeah. I mean, I don't, in a lot of ways, I don't really think feeling feeling bad for people, I think it's almost just like a judgment onto somebody else. Like, maybe they're happy like that. 
you never know. But well, I would imagine to be able to do that job, you have to have some element of neutrality, which I know I would not have. <laughs> I'm always trying to help people or fix things or. <laughs> uh-huh. So that would not that would not work out for me, but some somebody's got to do it. Well, do you feel bad for people? Um, I don't feel bad for people, but I am always trying to help people. Like I know even just like when I when I was substitute teaching for a while, you know, I'd kind of get to know a kid over a couple of days and I'd be like, "Oh, no, like this kid needs to be paid more attention to." Or like, you know, just solving other trying to solve problems for people that realistically i don't have the time or energy or capacity to to fix that which would be the same as dropping off some papers for somebody i'd probably be trying to get everyone out of trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. what do you think is the biggest factor in, in your life that uh influenced you your personality the most hmm. the, the biggest one thing about you or or um, or a condition that you have experienced that that influenced you the most in, in, in personality-wise, or wow. or or outlook on life-wise. Yeah, I think I was really sick for a year or two, and I had to have a really serious surgery. And I didn't know what was going to happen to my life or if it was going to return to normal in any way. So I think when I see people in difficult situations, whatever they are, I um I try not to judge it also. Because I know I never like... to judge what? Well, I never liked people feeling bad for me during the time. Like, it didn't help, actually. So. Yeah. Yeah, probably that. Probably just wanting to be there for people. Wanting to what? Be there for people. Just be there. Just be there. Instead of running away from hard things. Uh huh. I'll tell you mine. Definitely, it was being an only child. <clears throat> and I'm really glad I was an only child. Because it taught me I can entertain myself endlessly. I never get bored. I have so many interests that stem back to that period of time. You know, I, I found ways to just entertain. You know, I, I found out what I like to do, and I, and I did it. And even now, as I'm grown, same thing. I, I've cultivated a number of pastimes and hobbies that I, I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. In addition to everything else I do, you know, like... You know, I go to meat shoots in the fall, and, and I play darts, and I play bocce, and I, I swim, I read books, I go to a lot of movies, stuff like that. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, and I didn't have any brothers or sisters to play with, and uh, I, it, it taught me just to be very self-sufficient. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Yeah. Even in the way that and, you work creatively. And I don't I don't need anybody to make me happy or, or to um or to um 
I guess, yeah, you know, just I, I, I don't, ha- I don't need people as much as other people do. Hmm. Put okay. It that way. Yeah, I mean, Barbara I th- Streisand had that song. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Um, I think a I, lot of artists are like. Oh, that. I know what I want to say. I'm perfectly happy doing stuff by myself. Mm-hmm. Perfectly happy. You know, but I'm married and I've got a bunch of kids. How many kids do you have? Seven. Wow. By three women. What's the age range? Um, eight to thirty-five. Man, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it's quite a range. That's. I got. I'm gonna be seventy in a couple months, and I got five little girls. You've seen a few of them up here. Oh yeah, I well, yeah. I wasn't sure if those were your the, kids. People or think your they're grandkids. my grandkids, but they're not. But you know, like when I travel, when I when I often go alone. Like if I I go to Canada or Europe, mm-hmm. I'll go alone. I'm happier that way. Mm. I can do things whenever I want to do them. You know, I don't have to wait on somebody. Yeah, well, I mean, I can imagine for photography or work like that, you kind of just need to be inspired and get out there and do it when you want to. Yeah. But now, I don't know, you, this is a whole other topic we could talk about another time, but, mm-hmm. you, but you probably read maybe on Wikipedia that um, I found my biological family. I did stumble so, into that, yeah. So I'm just going to say this, and it's really uh, very remarkable. I grew up an only child, adopted, adopted only child, I found my natural family at the age of 50 or 51. Mm-hmm. And now I have seven half-brothers and sisters. Seven half-brothers and sisters from two different families. Because my mother and father married other people. So, oh, so like I, have, I was the first one. And then they, they subsequently married other people. And then one had three and one had four. So not, now I have a whole new family. At, you know, As I'm older... My family who adopted me, they're all gone. I, I'm not even in touch with any of them anymore. They're, they're either dead or they're estranged. Wow. So, but my new family, quote unquote, uh, you know, I have a whole new family. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, well, you're definitely welcome to come back on for another chat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that, there's some really good anecdotes about that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that being just a really interesting journey because it's, yeah, they're new, but they're not new. They're old, the originals. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. How long did we talk? For your time. Uh, So I have one last question for you. Yeah. Which is, you are in charge of giving our listeners a weekly challenge. Wait a minute. I'm in charge of what? A weekly challenge for the listeners. A weekly challenge? Yep. It can be anything that you'd like, that you would like to instruct people to do this week. Do, try, say, think, feel. I would say dig through some of your old stuff. You know, f- find a box that, that where, you've, where you've kept stuff in a closet or, you know, it's gathered dust and take it out and look at it and see what's in there. This sounds like a fun one. I like that. 
All right, and as I've been mentioning the last couple weeks, if you guys have an experience or a story that you'd like to share um, in relation to the weekly challenge, please send me an email or find me on the internet, and I'll be doing a whole episode uh, about the weekly challenge. Thank you, Jasmine. Oh, thank you so much. And if people want to find you on the internet or purchase your books, what's the best way to do that? Um, uh, I don't think you could buy the book at williamstage.com, but you can read you can read about my books there, and you could read Wikipedia, but you don't buy the book there. You can you buy the book at Amazon, or if you live in St. Louis, there's a bunch of bookstores that that carry it. Okay. I get an Amazon order every Monday morning. I got an order for 11 of them, 11 of my new novel, mm-hmm. St. Francis of Dogtown. I got this morning hmm. an order. Cool. That makes me happy. Yeah, it's 11 at once. That's, mm-hmm. It's a lucky number. This podcast goes out at 11.11. 11.11? 11. 11. A.M.? What do you mean? I've been set. Well, yeah, I set them in advance to go out. It's been going out at eleven eleven a.m. Sunday morning, but I think I'm going to make the transition to eleven eleven p.m. Saturday night, so that when everyone wakes up Sunday morning. Well, how would it be? How long would it be up? Forever? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming across the hall, and I'll talk to you guys next week for more archives for aliens. Okay.